Massimo Piliucci, as always, it is wonderful to see you. How are you? I'm good. How about you, my friend? I am doing very well. And uh, as we near the uh, Christmas break, uh, and, all, and all professors uh, feel giddier and giddier with every week that passes. <laughs> I, think, I think that goes for our students as well. I don't think it's just the professors. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so we're going to try and sneak one more of these in before we hit the break and everything gets crazy and uh, we have all these family commitments and stuff. Sounds good. And we're going to talk, Massimo, today about uh, liberal education. How appropriate. Um, before we start, let's do our introductions. Uh, so why don't you go ahead first, Massimo? I'm Massimo Pilducci, the KD Iranian professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. And I am Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. You might be able to see a part of my dog behind my shoulder, <laughs> <laughs> the rear part. <laughs> Wait a minute. I have a dog, too. Do you really? No, not really. But oh, okay. <laughs> so this is Plato. Plato is my ideal dog. It doesn't bark. It doesn't poop. It doesn't do anything. It's just there. Wow. I know, right? Now, see, if I could have just convinced my daughter and wife of that, then I would have been a happier man. But uh, <laughs> oh, well. I, I lost that battle. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about liberal education today. And um, the conversation, at least <clears throat> initially, is inspired by a piece that I wrote um, and posted on my web magazine, The Electric Agora, <coughs> Um in which I criticize some very common rationales that are given for uh, why we, we require liberal education uh, at the university right. for people getting bachelor's degrees. And I guess I was a little bit surprised that there I got a lot of very angry responses. Um, and it even spilled over onto your blog. People were angry at me on your blog, on your web magazine, your, your uh, uh, Plato's footnote. And was wondered whether I had turned into some angry some curmudgeon or whether I was having a midlife crisis. And so <laughs> I feel a little need that I need to. Yeah, you don't, you don't strike me either a curmudgeon or anybody going through a midlife crisis. <laughs> interesting, the response, because, you know, I would have ex actually expected most people to agree with you and say, yeah, the hell with liberal arts education, you know, yeah. useless, et cetera, et cetera. But, Which probably, yeah. So, so maybe what I'll do is I'll just very briefly bullet what the main points I made were um, because you said that you disagreed with quite a bit of it, if not all of it. And so right. um, that'll then give an opportunity for you to explain what you think is sort of wrong with my arguments. And then we can more generally talk about the value of liberal education and where, where its place should be and all of that. Sounds like uh, a plan. Okay. So um, this essay was actually developed out of a keynote speech that I gave that I was invited to give at, a, at an educational association. It did not go over well there either. <laughs> and, and, um, giving you a clue. And, um, um, so here's what, here's where, where I'm coming from. Um, if you're not at one of the top universities or one of the elite liberal arts colleges, the liberal arts are largely relegated to the general education curriculum. So, you know, we have a, we have, a, I, I'm at a very typical state university, um, not an R1, not anything fancy, the most common thing in the world, the kind of place where probably most Americans go to, go to, go to college. And in a population of 20,000 students, there are about 30 to 40 philosophy majors. Right. And that's pretty much what you're going to get. I mean, we try mightily to sort of increase our, our, our majors, but we, 
there's a natural, I am, my view, there's a natural ceiling, um, given the demographics of the people we serve and the types of people we serve. Right. Um, so what happens is the humanities then are, and the liberal arts are left to the general education curriculum. It, almost as if sort of we've made our stand at the general education curriculum. So we'll say, ah, well, okay, you know, I understand not that many of you want to major and stuff, but we still really need to have the liberal arts and the humanities because they're crucial to the general education curriculum. And the argument that we make as to why they're crucial to the general education curriculum is that we argue that they provide fundamental skills. Um, and those skills typically break down into some some version of critical thinking, by which is meant a sort of practical reason, capacity for practical reason. And then the other is vaguely articulated along the lines of something like moral character. Um, uh, uh, the idea that somehow um, uh, by studying these areas, uh, uh, if we're then going to go into business or into nursing or into any profession, that we're more likely to be uh, uh, ethical uh, in what we do if by virtue of having studied these subjects. Right. And, so my, my, my criticism of this sort of operates at several levels. At one level, I recognize why we retreated to the general education curriculum, but I'm not happy about it. In other words, this strikes me as already defensive, right? Yeah. Um, and um, the other is that I don't think that these, are, these reasons are very good reasons. Uh, and that's sort of what made up the bulk of the essay that uh, that I wrote. And, of course, there'll be a link to it so people can, can read it and see what I'm talking about. So on this subject of whether or not the liberal arts and humanities are necessary to provide these basic skills, and by the way, these skills are deemed as essential to being successful, not just uh, – in our professional lives, but also successful as citizens. We're told that, that if we want, to have, uh, we want to have a good participatory democracy, then our citizens have to be educated in this material. Right. And I guess I just, I, I find both of these arguments relatively unpersuasive. And primarily it's because of the way in which I think these sorts of skills are actually acquired. Uh, and I don't think they're primarily acquired through classroom learning. And also because of um, the kind of the kind of country we are, I'm not sure that we're the kind of participatory liberal democracy for which these ideas were originally uh, promoted as being uh, essential. And so, with respect to the first point, thing the ability to reason well um, in the sense of practical reasoning strikes me um, as much less a product of classroom and book learning than a product of experience. Um, let's put it this way. Um, I know students who have gone through the entire regimen of logic courses that we offer and their practical reason stinks. Right. And I know waitresses that I used to work with when I was in the restaurant business who've never set a foot in college, whose practical reasoning is sharp as a knife. They make their judgments are great. They make great calls, right? When, when, when in various circumstances that demand it. Um, and so I guess, you know, to employ sort of language that we've used before, I view practical reason as more a matter of knowing how than a matter of knowing that. And so the sort of thing that one can learn in a classroom when one is taught logical fallacies or taught deduction or rules of inference or taught various things. I think has a very limited efficacy in terms of actually making a, a person into a good practical reasoner. 
Uh, and uh, beyond simply the argument, I can simply point to a lot of people who've had precisely that sort of education who are terrible practical reasoners. And I can point to people who've had no such education who are very good practical reasoners, which suggests that practical reasoning is a skill that's primarily acquired in a different sort of way. With respect to the moral moral argument, um, I would say something very similar. Um, that is that moral virtue is not primarily the result of uh, intellectual uh, training, of education of the sort that one gets in a university. It too is a matter primarily, and this I agree with Aristotle, of sort of, you know, practice. Um, and there too one can, you know, easily point to the fact that there seems to me to be no correlation between the people who have been college educated and thus received liberal education of the sort we're talking about, and the set of people who are morally virtuous yeah. or civically virtuous. Yeah. Um, and so I, that's another thing that I just don't really think uh, is very persuasive. Um, I don't know do you, if you want to break these up and, sure. and, and, and maybe do the critique at, in pieces or else sure. uh, it's going to be me talking for too long. Yeah, let's, let's go. That's right. So let's go. So, yes. Let's, Let's let's go a little bit by little. So the, the the first observation you made was that you know there is a small number of philosophy majors at, in your program. That that's I think pretty typical. I mean we have uh, at City College we also have I think something like fifty give or take uh, majors out of a student population of I think about fifteen thousand or something like that. Right, and, and and that's that's fairly typical. There are exceptions. Uh, you know, there are some public universities even where the philosophy programs are actually doing surprisingly well. But the thing is, surprisingly. So, yeah, like at Michigan. I went to Michigan. Now, Michigan has a top 10 program. Right, right. So they're, they're, they're almost in like in part like Princeton or Yale or in terms of uh, – So there are exceptions. Yeah. However, I think that even there – so just, just looking at that data, um, I think actually this is uh, an, uh, uh, a – data point to be put into perspective. For instance, I just learned recently because we're having, as you might imagine, as usual, budget problems, you know, at City College, CUNY and all that sort of stuff. So one of the interesting statistics that the Dean of uh, Humanities and Arts brought up is that there are, um, and he did not mean this as a, as a criticism of philosophy, he just meant it as a very weird thing. There are something like six or seven times more arts majors than philosophy majors at City College. You mean fine arts, Massimo? Yeah. You, mean fine arts? yeah. you know, it's so, so it's like, okay, so I'm thinking, so if, if people don't go into philosophy because they don't think there is a career there, why the hell are they going into the fine arts where it's arguably even less likely that you're going to have a career? And yet, and I think the answer there, quite frankly, has nothing to do with the value of philosophy versus fine arts or anything like that. It's got to do with the, pers the, with the public perception. That um, oh, philosophy is the quintessential, you know, useless field of of, of endeavor, uh, and then you're better off even trying to be a you know, musician or a painter than than trying to be a philosopher. Um, so some of these statistics do have to do, I think, with specific um, situations within specific fields of the humanities. But I do think that you're right in general that. Uh, at public universities, the humanities, broadly speaking, are not doing as well, obviously, as the sciences uh, or, or as sort of technical fields. So let's the, take the STEM, the STEM discipline. That's as right. They the call STEM it. Yeah. Yeah. right. And uh, so let's take that as a as a as a given, right? Okay. Um, but the thing is, um, then the question is: Is this something that we want to encourage? I mean, is something that we that we actually want to to foster or even make made worse or better, depending on how you look at it, or is it actually a problem? I mean, you, you one could read your arguments and say, well, 
uh, you know, it is the way it is and it should be that way um, because of all the reasons you started listing. And those are the ones that, that's the, that's where I actually have um, a little bit more of a problem in terms of sort of the, the, the specific arguments. You know, not I don't have, I don't disagree, in other words, with what it is, the situation that it is now. It is true that most of the humanities are uh, sustained essentially through general education uh, curricula. What I disagree is is that you know why that is and, and how it should be different. So, um, for one thing, uh, you say that these kind of the kind of skills uh, or the kind of general view of the of the world that is taught in in the humanities um, is it would be much better to be absorbed as a practice than as a sort of a theoretical thing. That the skills that we are claiming the right. students need to study liberal arts humanities in order to acquire, right. I don't think are mostly acquired through classroom learning. Right. Yes. Now, but, but, in, but in order to do that, first of all, you have to draw some fairly heavy distinction between knowledge that and knowledge how, as you pointed out just a minute ago. Yeah. And as you know, we talked about Ryle action in one of our recent video discussions. Ryle himself doesn't draw that distinction that that sharply. Um, and in fact, even Aristotle, which I doesn't, uh, certainly not all the um, not all the, the, the Hellenistic, you know, the ancient Greek and Romans did. There was um, certainly for the Stoics, another group that we talked about recently. Uh, there was a continued interaction between practice and theory. I mean, you, you definitely want to practice. The point was you don't you don't achieve virtue you don't become a virtuous person without without uh, practice you don't change your character you don't improve your character without practice but you also have to know where the practice is going and how to do it because otherwise uh, you're, you're going blank you're blank you're, you, you need you need some kind of guidance you need some kind of sort of theoretical grounding but the so that's one one consideration first that there's no sharp distinction between knowledge how knowledge that and second that actually even um, both ancient and modern sources do seem to indicate that virtue or character, whatever, however you want to put it, is actually developed through 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 both. Not the two are not mutually exclusive. So, if anything, I would say what that means is that we are deficient in the practice. That we somehow we should in, improve our curriculum uh, or improve the experience of our students with practice, um, just like the, the sciences do, right? So you don't learn biology or physics just by doing theory. You also go into the lab. The lab component, you know, when I was a, a, a practicing scientist and still today, of course, most of my colleagues in the sciences are, are adamant about the fact that a scientific education, a STEM education, has to go through uh, some level of practice. Otherwise, you don't really get what, what these people are talking about. But they will also very equally, you know, very strongly defend the idea that, yes, but you also need the theoretical understanding. Um, so I'm not convinced that that's that different in, in the case of the humanities, although, of course, it does have a different flavor and a different kind of implementation. I mean, you know, we're not going to have lab laboratories uh, in, any, in anything like the sense may, of may, Maybe when we talk about what we see for the future, you might give some idea of, of what might be analogous sure. for liberal humanities. Because, I, I mean, one of the things I hope will come out of this is some ideas for suggestions. Yeah that may lead to future essays on my part or whatever. Um, and so maybe, maybe later we can talk yeah, about that. And yeah. that. That's a good idea. Now, uh, but, but still on the general, uh, on the sort of broad general idea. First of all, there is empirical evidence that uh, studying the, 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 the um, humanities in general and, is, and, and in fact in particular uh, philosophy is helpful both in terms of practice, uh, sort of 
practice, not in, in the sense of virtual practice, but practice as in technical practice, uh, as well as it, that it does in fact lead uh, people to develop a better, improved understanding of the world in which they live and therefore how to navigate it. So from a practical perspective, for, so for instance, when I was a department chair in a philosophy department at Lehman College, uh, which is also part of CUNY, I had to really look into the, at the data. I was, you know, my, my dean was very evidence-driven, and I'm a scientist, so I'm fine with being evidence-driven. So I actually went and looked into data, and, and it turns out that there, the data, there is data out there about this, and it's pretty clear. Uh, it is, it is, although it is obviously always very difficult to disentangle causality from, you know, from simple correlation, but it is still the case very clearly that, for instance, philosophy majors do very well at very practical tests, such as the LSAT, the GRE, uh, and all that sort of stuff. They have very high levels of admissions into graduate school, law school, medical school, and so on and so forth. And one can argue that that's in part because people who are driven to study philosophy are the kind of you know thoughtful, uh, dedicated people, et cetera, et cetera. They, they eventually do well no matter what they do. There is, there is an argument for that. But you can also make the argument that philosophy does teach portable skills, uh, you know, uh, critical thinking, critical reading, uh, so analysis of, of, um, of uh, complex situations and so on and so forth. These are, these are portable skills. These are things that philosophy is not the only one to teach. They can be taught, you know, philosophers sometimes claim a lot too much. And we're not only talking about philosophy, we're talking about liberal arts and humanities in general. So That's right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But let's not forget that philosophy is a fairly large, you know, yes. a good component of that. Yes. There is also ev uh, evidence, in fact, I was talking to one of my colleagues um, in the humanities just very recently, uh, and in fact, even in the social sciences, there's also evidence that, let's say, reading literature uh, uh, actually does help empathize with people that are different from you. It does help. Put your, putting yourself into a perspective that it's different from your from your own. There are certain things, like for instance, I um, a colleague of mine gave a talk in one of my classes recently about how um, it is possible, it's much better to study to understand sort of the, the colonialism, for instance, not just by looking at the data, not just like looking at the historical uh, uh, facts, essentially of the thing, but also by reading diaries or novels written by people. Um, that actually have experienced colonialism firsthand, because that's the way in which you you, you empathize, you 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 open yourself to different perspectives. So so there is a number of empirical uh, um, there's there's empirical evidence that ranges from quantitative data to sort of more uh, you know qualitative kind of assessment that the humanities do what they claim to do. That is. Uh, expand people's perspectives and also give them technical skills that that, that can be used in uh, in pursuing other fields. Um, so if you put that together with this idea that you know knowledge then and knowledge now are not quite that sharply distinct, and with an acknowledgement that you are certainly right that the practice is important, um, I think you begin to build an interesting sort of counter argument. There are a couple of other things I want to mention, then we can sort of jump. Did you want? Did you want to address the issue of moral virtue also, or do you want me to to respond to the, the to, just to this first? I do have a few things to say, not a lot. Yeah. Or do you want to do you want to do both? Go after both of my points first before I before I talk yeah, to you. Let's, let me finish a couple of things about yeah. moral virtue as well. So there, I think that your position, for instance, um, from the way I understand it. Uh, I think that a number of, uh, you know, religious figures like, you know, priests, pastors and rabbis would disagree uh, that there is no need 
for or that it doesn't make any 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 difference to have sort of a, a, a theoretical understanding of certain of certain issues, which is why you go to catechism, for instance. You know, as a Catholic, that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, again, uh, they would certainly immediately uh, add that that's not enough. You need you know that, that your religion. Uh, or in my case, your philosophy is something that you need to practice on an, on a, on an everyday basis. But again, it doesn't seem to be uh, mutually exclusive with, with the theory. And finally, let me just mention one thing. You know, so one, one of the people that I have been uh, very influential early on in my, in my own uh, formation was Noam Chomsky. And Noam Chomsky famously said, that uh, in his opinion, the, the people of you know the Western countries, you know what, what we refer, perhaps as you say, optimistically as sort of uh, liberal democracies, um, they really need to take a serious course in what he called intellectual self-defense, uh, precisely for the reasons you're talking about. That is precisely because uh, we do live in society where there is a large degree of manipulation, collusion between government and private sector. Uh, you know, advertisements that bombards you all, all over the place, you know, manipulations all the right and left. Well, then you, I would think not that Chomsky is right, that precisely because of that, you want to give people tools to react, to be aware. Let me give you an analogy and then I'll, I'll stop for, 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 um, for a minute and we can get into a discussion. So, um, as you know, there's been a lot of um, research in recent years showing that uh, human beings are prone to all sorts of, you know, cognitive fallacies that, that you know, that, that we have uh, all sorts of sort of bad ways of reasoning that we rationalize things and so on and so forth. Now, some cognitive scientists have therefore uh, used that data to argue that, um, well, see, all of these talk about turn, learning critical thinking and, all, and, all, and, 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 and being aware of fallacies and all that. It's just it's like it's not very useful because here, look what happens. Human beings actually are, in fact engaging in fallacious reasoning all the time. But that strikes me as weird. And in fact, it's kind of opposite to what would be a reasonable conclusion. That would be like saying, we know that people uh, gamble um, in, in, a, in an irrational way because they don't understand probability theory. Therefore, let's not teach probability theory. No, I would say, therefore, let's teach probability theory. In fact, let's increase the classes in probability theory. Let's make it mandatory so that people actually have at least an understanding or a warning about what they're what they're going to do. The same goes for cognitive biases. I think the same goes for uh, these these broader and admittedly much more fuzzy category of uh, what I would consider civic virtues. That is being aware of it, reading about it, reading the theory. I think is a fundamental part of of giving people the tools to resist and react to precisely that kind of uh, society that you are, I think, effectively describing. All right. So, and I will say that, you know, with regard to the point you made about Chomsky, I did say in the essay, um, and we'll probably, we'll talk about this, that I could see somebody making an argument for a kind of almost countercultural role for for liberal education. But I then also said that I think it would then have to take a very different shape than, than it currently takes. Um, a lot more Huxley and Orwell, and a lot less, uh, a lot less uh, uh, John Locke. But, um, um, but let, let, I could go with that. <laughs> but let me let me go back to just uh, just a few things, and, and you know we don't have to go around on this too much. I'm very happy to just sort of let let it sit with you know your arguments and my arguments, and sure. let people. Um, but just a few things. So first of all, um, with respect to the the, the theoretical point. Um, I never, I don't think I ever said, and I certainly didn't mean to suggest that 
there is no role for classroom learning uh, and for the sort of knowledge that 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 one acquires from classroom learning. Okay. Simply that the benefits of that from the standpoint of skill formation are are mostly indirect and uh, and relatively minimal. Um, and my evidence for the fact that they're relatively minimal is that, like I said, I know plenty of waitresses who are outstanding practical reasoners. They've not had a single day of, of logic education. And indeed, I know waitresses who are a hell of a lot better practical reasoners than my philosophy majors. And so the, to argue that somehow this is necessary strikes me as way overselling it, right? I'm not saying it's not useful in any way, but what I'm saying is, you know, to claim that it's necessary, then I would have to believe that, A, the college students are all going to be great practical reasoners, and B, that people who haven't had this education should be terrible practical reasoners, and neither is the case. I right? you, but, but let's yeah. be careful here. So, no, I wouldn't say I wouldn't go as far as saying that that theoretical knowledge is necessary for practical for practical reasoning. Although, I would argue that we live in a in a society that is, that is increasingly complex, where the practical reasoning isn't as simple as say what was necessary was what was sufficient to navigate a society of 200 years ago or 500 years ago or a thousand years ago i mean we live in a society where there are drones and terrorist attacks and and politicians that can use very advanced technologies to you know sway the audiences and so on and so forth so uh with all due respect to your waiter waiters uh, i do think that there is quite a bit of sort of in terms of technical just technical knowledge just, just awareness of things that are going on that that you might most people might not be aware of that needs to be brought brought in, but certainly I didn't mean to suggest that uh, there are there are there aren't plenty of people out there who are very good at practical knowledge without having theoretical basis, and vice versa. You're right. I know a lot of people who have a lot of theoretical knowledge and they don't know what the hell to do with it. But this is really an empirical question that needs to be debated on the basis right. of numbers, right? Because otherwise, if we don't if we don't go to actual numbers, you know, actual actual studies, uh, it, it begins to sound like my father who died of uh, cancer after smoking for a lifetime and kept telling me until the very end that he knew somebody who smoked for 90 right, years and, right. and didn't get cancer. Well, right. sure. Right. Uh, we can all, you know, pick cherry pick basically whatever right. examples are, 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 are going our way. And what I'm saying is that now it, it'd be nice to have more research because that's, that's for sure. One of the things that we do uh, need is more sociological research, more 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 systematic research on the benefits, both practical and theoretical, of studying the humanities. But you know, once we go down that route, I would actually also like to have the opposite, the, the same thing done for the STEM field, because quite frankly, on the basis of anecdotal evidence, I'm not so sure that yeah. people that study the STEM fields are that much better. Uh, doing whatever it is that we expect of them, uh, yeah. you know, as as citizens or as or as members of the workforce and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, we we seem to have slipped. Now, we not as in you and I, but but as a society, we seem to have slipped into this uh, uh, assumption that well, of course, studying uh, biology or chemistry or physics is important, even though a lot of what you study in biology chemistry physics is essentially irrelevant to everyday life or even to work yeah, life. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's, I'm still not convinced that teaching college students, uh, you know, quantum mechanics, unless they do go on in, in, in a career in the physics, is any more relevant than teaching them, you know, Shakespeare or, or Plato. In fact, I yeah. think it's less relevant. 
1990s. So yeah, but but of course, but but I mean, of course, we have to be careful because we're slipping in between general education and what people major in. I mean, the thing about STEM is, look, the STEM people have to take all the same general education courses that everybody else does, and so yeah. the the reason why STEM is so popular is because people are convinced that this is that these are money earning areas, so that when people graduate college, they'll be able to get jobs. Right. Um, the 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 gen ed argument is an argument about sort of basic skill formation that then gets applied anywhere. And I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that I just think that the arguments that are made on behalf of the role that liberal education plays in inculcating those skills is wildly overstated. Now you, you're right about the fact that, you know, this is at the end of the day, an empirical question. The problem is, is that I don't really see how one could do an empirical investigation into this for the following reason. And that is, the fact that we we have surveys uh, data that shows that philosophy majors do well on the GRE on the LSAT, right. or that philosophy majors do pretty well in the job market when they get into that's not, in my view, evidence that learning philosophy makes you a good practical reasoner. No, it is of course not. It is evidence that learning philosophy it is at least partial evidence. Because as I said earlier, there is a really complicated issue of disentangling correlations and causation. But uh, that is partial evidence that studying philosophy is actually practically useful in, ter- in, ter- in terms of career, which is one yes. thing that most people still deny. Yes. Um, and in terms of employment, for instance, it is simply not true that people that get degrees in humanities don't get good employment, good salaries, and so on and so forth. That's they right. Just don't do it by becoming poets. Right. So you, you study literature, let's say you, you're, you're a literature major, English major. You don't become necessarily an English professor or a poet. Right. You become something else because, you know, I don't know, a journalist or, you know, writer of some other kind or, or, or you just use your skills, uh, your reading and, and writing skills in other in other areas. Yeah. But that's true also for the other fields. I mean, um, sure, if you're talking about in, uh, major in engineering, probably you're going to have to become an engineer, or if you're right. majoring in nursing, you're going to have to become a nurse. Or accounting, you're going to be an accountant, or, or yeah. But if you major in, in, in mathematics, or in physics, or in chemistry and biology, actually very few of those people become professional mathematicians, biologists, chemists, or physicists. Most of those people actually are going to go into more generic jobs, where they, however, use sort of the kind of rigorous training that they got weren't right. major. So, so there is that. Um, so I think it's really easy, or at least it's more approachable to make the case that general education and even ma- measure, uh, measuring in certain humanist- humanistic fields, it's actually much more useful than practically useful than people think. Now, let's go back to the, to the, to the issue, however, of virtue. Right. So good question there about, uh, about, you know, does the study of philosophy or literature or the humanities in general make a person, you know, a better civic person, I would say, yeah. a, a better member of society. I am going to bet yes, but there is no data that I know about. Really? You really think that? Yes, I do, because hmm. on a basis of anecdotal evidence, on hmm. the basis of, so for instance, last night. So the college educated people you know have typically been better folk than the blue, blue collar people you know? I would say in my case, my experience has been exactly the opposite of that. No, it's better. It's a, it's a it's a dangerous word, of course, right? Because uh, it has, it's amenable to all sorts of definitions. No, I think they're more aware of what's going on. Right? Mm, so I see. So, right. So my students, for instance, typically when I when I teach a course in critical thinking, they're initially stunned 
by just how easy it is to manipulate uh, you know, opinions through, through uh, the media, through, through you know, one of the things that we do in my critical thinking course, for instance, is this game that I call Spot the Fallacy, where I present a number of uh, news items covered by different channels. Mm. And you know, we, we, we look at the same uh, news item and it's presented in very different ways. And I, and I, and I challenge my students to sort of make a comparison with that. And many of these people, many, many of these students who are smart, but they're just, you know, it's not like they're, they're not deficient in anything in terms of sort of raw intelligence, but they just have never thought about it that way. And plenty of my teaching evaluations are of people who say, huh, I'll never look again at news in the same way as I did before taking this course, right? Now, again, this is anecdotal evidence, or at least it's only semi-quantitative because these are actually evaluations that, you know, over, over a number of years. But I do think they do make, they do make uh, in part, my case. There are also more, more obvious cases. Uh, these are also are anecdotal, uh, so forgive me for that. But um, last night we had, a, you know, yesterday was Philosophy Day and uh, International Philosophy Day. And, and last night at... Uh, at City College, we had Peter Singer uh, to give, a, give who gave a talk uh, about effective altruism, and one of the things that he did is he presented a number of cases of uh, people who were majoring in philosophy, in particular, who were studying philosophy, who at some point, because of their study of philosophy, became uh, sort of aware of certain issues that they had not given much thought about in terms of social in- inequity, social injustice, and so on and so forth, and that that. Uh, led them to drastically change their career path, to drastically change their behavior uh, in order to actually do something about it. So the, some of these people created charities, for instance, that are into, uh, they're useful to evaluate other char- charities, like charity evaluators kind of things, uh, so that, you know, the, the, uh, the people can actually look at quantitative data to uh, make decisions that allows them to do the, the most good that they can with the, whatever resources uh, they are willing to part with. Now, these are levels of uh, theoretical th- thinking, I think, that it's not normally, uh, I don't want to say always, but it's not normally at the, at, uh, within reach of people who, not, who have not been exposed to certain kinds of ideas. Now, is it possible there are exceptions? Yeah, of course. And am I claiming that one can be a good person only or even mostly just because of theoretical education? Absolutely not. Uh, there's plenty of good people out there. Right, but it's one. Yeah, I mean, do, don't you come from a largely uh, working family? Not, not a, you don't come from an academic family. No, that's right. I was the first one going, and the only one yeah. going to college in my family. Uh, and I bet you they're all as great people as you are. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's right. So, right, you're absolutely right. So, I'm trying to draw a distinction here between good people and good people who are better informed. Right. So, good people with tools. I mean, when going back to Chomsky. Right. Uh, phrase about uh, going through a course in intellectual self-defense. Chomsky wasn't saying that intellectual self-defense is going to make people better in terms of, you know, as in good, you know, more virtuous, but it's going to make them more aware. Yeah. Therefore, it give, gives them tools to actually practice their virtue better than they would otherwise. Right. right but, but then that seems to me now we're, we're, we're almost getting at a similar point that we were at before, which seems to me now we're crossing over. We're, we're not talking anymore about education for skills, we're talking about education that provides information, right? Right. That provides that. Now, I would never deny that in order to be, you know, part of being a good voter is to know enough about the issues that you know you even know what you're talking about, right? right. Um, 
but that's not that's not a skill, right? I mean, the skill is the ability to identify what's 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 right or what's virtuous, right? The 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 information that's required in order to uh, be able to navigate, let's say, a particular political issue or social issue, um, is another matter. And so, you know, no one is suggesting that hey, you know, we don't need to people don't people need to learn some history so that they know enough. Uh, information that they can intelligibly uh, uh, understand what's going on today. I certainly would be the last person to suggest that. But when we talk about justifying the liberal arts in the general education curriculum on the grounds that they produce these skills, right, these fundamental skills, the capacity for practical reason and the capacity for moral virtue, for civic virtue, um, uh, I don't believe that the more informed person in the in the in, ha, is a better identifier of what's right and what's wrong than the person who is uh less informed he they, he simply doesn't have the information but he's he may not he may be just as good if not better at identifying what the right or wrong thing is when he has the information oh sure but, yeah. well yes i can agree with that but the point of general education is in fact in part to provide you with the information and yes. not only with the information but with the tools to handle that information right because right. you can i mean Frankly, the problem that we have in modern society, contemporary society, thanks to the Internet, it's not that we don't have enough information. It's that we don't have enough, you know, we, a lot of people don't have the tools to actually filter that information and figure out, you know, the, 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 the bad stuff from the, from the useful stuff. Uh, or as my grandmother used to say, uh, separate on, other, on something other than color, chocolate from shit. Uh, yeah. So it, it's like, um, so I, I'm, I'm saying that there is a, interaction uh, between knowledge that and knowledge how, if you will, or, or, or in, in between factual information, the, the, on the one hand, the tools to deal with that factual information, on the other hand, right, for instance, let me go back to my example of, of the, the, the person who should read, who should learn something about probability theory in order to navigate, you know, uh-huh. the world, right? So I could give somebody a lot of statistics about X, Z, or Y, but if they don't have a minimum of theory of understanding of how statistics work and in fact of how easily people can manipulate be manipulated based on statistics, uh, yeah. that information not only is not going to do anything, it's actually going to going to harm them because they don't know how to deal with that information. Right. Yeah. Now, I want to go back to the issue of virtue here, um, because there I think you are closer to the mark in, in my mind. That is, if by virtue you mean uh you know, sort of goodness of character kind of thing, right? Of, of, you know, are you a good person? There, I'm much less sure that general education uh, is, is going to provide you that or is going to be that relevant. I think that, that that a good person is shaped much earlier on. I think that that a good character is, in part, of course, it's the result of your genes, but in part is the result of very early experiences, you know, family experience, Perhaps educational experiences, but at a very early stage, like, you know, uh, kindergarten and, 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 and uh, elementary school. That's not to say that people cannot change uh, and cannot, you know, re-educate themselves, uh, even morally re-educate themselves. I mean, one of the things that is very successful, for instance, apparently, is a number of programs for teaching philosophy, practical philosophy, to inmates, uh, you know, in prisons. And they do seem to have a, a significant effect. So it's not like adults are completely beyond reach of uh, that sort of of, of change, but I would agree that character is shaped very early on, and that it's largely set by the time you hit college. Um, but but then again, I don't know too many people who have actually claimed um, 
that you know studying Shakespeare or or reading Plato is is actually going to make you a good person. I think that there, the claim usually is that it's going to make you a well-rounded person, a more you know a person with broad intellectual horizons, perhaps stimulating your curiosity, perhaps giving you a different perspective on that number of things, and therefore indirectly making you a better citizen. So a better participant to society, but not necessarily a better person. I mean, in that sense, your waitress is probably just as good as as anybody else um, that comes out of with a college degree or for that matter, with a Ph.D. degree. Well, I, I mean, we certainly. Look, we certainly do. Advertise our I mean, and at least in, with respect to our general education curriculum, and I suspect it's not that different from that many other places. Um, we certainly do make a pretty strong suggestion that um, uh, the studying of ethics uh, and the incorporation of ethics into the curriculum uh, at the general education level, when combined with the teaching of critical thinking, um, does produce more ethical, does, does, is, is likely to produce more ethical citizens. I mean, we definitely, we, we sell it on that ground. Um, well, but uh, so that's an interesting one. So that's a very, that's a much more specific claim, right? Yeah. Um, now that one, it's kind of interesting. So let me think about this for a second. So first of all, there is actually empirical evidence showing that that's not the case for professional ethicists. Right. There's this famous uh, series of studies that came out in the last two or three years that showed that moral philosophers are no more moral. That's right. Uh, in their be actual behavior than than their colleagues, not that's not right. the average person, but their, their colleagues in the, in a university. That was the, the so that's that's interesting right there. Of course, the, there's a number of reasons why that may be. Uh, I, I suspect that the main reason is because uh, having a Ph.D. in moral philosophy has a lot has to do with very technical, very specific uh, kind of scholarship and not necessarily anything to do with practical philosophy. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, but at the level of undergraduate education, I am not sure. I mean, we, again, it's, this is a question of data, uh, uh, of, of empirical evidence. But I'd be curious to, to see because I actually do think that um, some of my students who for the first time, let's say, are exposed to uh, utilitarian arguments about certain very specific um, practical moral dilemmas. Again, when, when I teach that kind of – I don't teach ethics usually, but I do teach – a general philosophy, you know, introductory philosophy course that does have a component of ethics. And uh, I've seen, you know, with my own eyes, my students sort of all of a sudden getting, you know, literally getting out of their, their, their uh, box and, and, and thinking in a different way. But once that they were actually exposed to a given different tools, let's say, to think about moral dilemmas. I mean, I've seen discussions in class on, very practical things like abortion or, or euthanasia or, or drone warfare and something like that, that studied out at a very raw level, at a very unsophisticated level before I gave my students the tools. Uh, and then once I gave them the tools, the, the level of discourse was much, much higher. So I expect, uh, and again, this is an empirical question, but I do expect those students then to go into the real world. And the next time that they're faced with that kind of, di of dilemma, or, or complex moral situation, they now they have tools, and so they're going to say to their friends or or, or or relatives or something, "Oh, wait a minute, it's not quite that easy because there's this and there's that, and there's you need to consider this, the, the the complication of the of the issue." So, does that make them better persons? Well, I think that just the ability to be more nuanced about ethical dilemma 
dilemmas does make you a better person because it makes you more com more more comfortable with um, with uncertainty. Uh, it makes it makes you less sure uh, and less self righteous about about your decisions. Mm. So I think there is a possibility that that's going to work. Now, if anything, I would say that the problem is that we don't do enough of it, of, of the kind of stuff we're talking about. That is, I would like to see an ethics lab, for instance, or the equivalent of an ethics lab. I would like to see uh, courses in philosophy to be actually, in part, applied philosophy. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so I would like to see, I mean, I'm going to try, for instance, something like that uh, in, a, in about a year, um, uh, next semester I'm going to be on sabbatical, uh, but don't worry, we'll continue these discussions from Rome. Um, oh, that'll be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should do it from restaurants and show me all the food I'm not eating, right? It's, it's, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> uh, so, so, but, but my intention is when I come back to teach an experimental course in, in on, on, on stoicism, because as you know, that's one of the things I'm interested in. And what I'd like to do is to go through the uh, to the ancient texts, you know, Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and then to actually have the students practice. So I'll have them write their own philosophical diaries and, 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 and uh, engage into sort of meditation and things like that. And then see at the rest at the end of the semester, I'll give them questionnaires right at the beginning of the semester. And that at the end of the semester, the kind of questionnaires that uh, this, the modern stoicism uh, project uses at Exeter University to uh, gauge people's responses to these things and see if, if actually it did make a, a practical difference in the way they look at things and the way they act and the way they feel about certain certain issues. So I think that you're uh, sort of ironically you're right there that we're missing we are we're too focused on the on the theory but I don't take the message to be therefore the theory is irrelevant uh, or it's not you know it shouldn't be pursued I, I take the message to be that should be just in the, like, like the STEM fields do. It should be actually coupled with practice, which is something that we, by and large, don't do. Yeah. Um, let me just say one, one more thing about the, the, the good citizen, and then let's uh, uh, move to uh, the, the thing about uh, liberal democracy. Yeah. Um, um, so when you were talking there, and you were talking about how studying these things makes you more nuanced and more. The immediate thing I thought of was these Yale protesters. Yeah. And, and I have to tell you that I'm very skeptical of this last bit that you just gave me. Um, my experience has been is that certainly taking these courses, so taking our course in environmental ethics or in global ethics or in feminist ethics or whatever, we offer all of these. Yeah. certainly makes people more activist, yeah. right? There, It gets them to go out and man the barricades. Right. But I don't think that I would not characterize much of what's involved there as good citizenship. Indeed, the opposite is these people strike me in a lot of senses as a bunch of Stalinists yeah. and in terms of the way that they're going about doing what they're doing um, and, 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 and what they're trying to accomplish – um, and that, and I think the reason for that is because at the end of the day, a 20-year-old is a 20-year-old. Yeah. And one of the things that characterizes that age is that we are very ideological. Yeah. And so all that happens is you put one of these people in a global ethics class and you just give them a bunch of ammunition mm -hmm. to become an even worse ideologue than they would be otherwise. Right. And to go out and, 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 and you know, demand redress for microaggressions and demand that people be fired and, and go and, and, and throw vegetables at college deans and stuff. I just don't see what you're describing um, happening. I just see them. 
us providing them with more information, uh, but their inherent disposition is a 20-year-old's disposition, right? Well, yes, it is. Um, and the result is not always better. I'd almost yeah. rather they didn't know this stuff, right? Because then they, then they wouldn't be out there yeah. the screaming at people. Is, the result is not always better. And as, 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 <laughs> nothing as dangerous as, as little knowledge, <laughs> out, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, no, I, I completely agree. And I'm actually uh, – I've written about this. Uh, on my blog, I am disturbed as well by the kind of stuff that has been going on on yeah. university campuses. Although, as you know, it's a really complicated thing because yes. the grievances of, that these students have, and the different case cases are different. I think the stuff right. at, the stuff at Mizzou yeah. is much more legitimate than the stuff at Yale, right? Exactly. The stuff at Mizzou, there really are racial problems at Mizzou, right? So, um, so there um, are. Yeah. it's complicated. Yeah. Some of the grievances are legitimate. The way yes. they're going about it, it's totally. Yeah. yeah. In, in some cases, certainly in the case of the Yale students, in my, in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Now, by the way, you know that both you, we're both going to get in a lot of trouble because of this particular bit of the conversation. That's all right. No. I can exactly. tell you. <laughs> um, so I take your point. But at the same time, I do think that those those episodes are also, in, the, in, in, in particular, are the result of a very specific climate that we live today in Western, not in Western society in general, but in American society in particular. So yeah. those things are not happening in other Western countries, for one thing. And they did not happen in America uh, until very recently, even though we did have liberal arts education and we did have, you know, the same kind of thing. In fact, I understand what you're saying. Right. Yeah. So, so I think that those you're saying this is really anomalous and very heavily contingent on a number of very specific developments that are happening now, and that we can't really draw any conclusion from it about how we're educating these people. Right. I suspect. I suspect that that is the reason. Uh, I don't want to dismiss it because I do agree with you that that is in fact a problem and that not it does need to be addressed. Um, but uh, but I do think it's a it's a result of a very specific set of, of cultural circumstances, and I, I don't think we can blame it on on, on general education or on, on humanistic education. I mean, because if you do that, then then you have a hard time explaining how how come this is not happening in a lot of the places where there is arguably more humanistic education than there is in the United States. Because let's not forget that the United States is actually an anomaly among Western countries. It is true generally across the world that. STEM fields are, of course, dominant now in, in, in universities. That's true also in Europe. It's true in Australia, in New Zealand. It's true in Japan, which is not a Western country, of course, but it's a sort of Western kind country. It's a Westernized country, right. yes. Or in, yes. Or in South Korea, uh, for instance, right? Uh, or in India, for that matter. But it is also true that the United States actually has arguably the least amount of sort of that, that kind of humanistic education compared to, let's say, still places in England, in France, in right. Germany, in Italy. Uh, and yet I don't see those other places being plagued by that kind of yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think we need to make a distinction. I think that's a fair point. Um, so, so let me just – let's quickly just talk about this other element. Um, and that is that one of the other points, the arguments that I made is that to a large extent, the liberal arts curriculum um, has become somewhat anachronistic. And that is that it belongs to largely a pre-industrial society. And, and here's the sort of idea I was getting at. Um, the liberal arts, the liberal arts curriculum goes back to the Studia Humanitatis of the of the Renaissance. Okay, right. and um, by the time it morphed into what we roughly I could identify as the liberal arts curriculum, we, we were at a time in which you ha you, you you were beginning to have um, uh, uh, emerging liberal democracies, but they were still heavily hierarch socially hierarchical in nature. In other words, the franchise was limited. Okay. Um, and it was limited to aristocratic and upper class people right. um, who also were the same people who would be who would receive higher education. Right. 
And the idea was to inculcate them in a certain literature, in a certain set of manners and mores uh, and ideas that would allow them to, in a sense, serve not just as the ruling governing class, but as the determinants of the major of the main culture, of the primary culture. Um, and in those days, those were the free people. Those were the people who were who were who got to vote. Those are the people who, were, in a sense, were engaged in public uh, governance. That's right. It was also a time in which commerce was relatively unsophisticated, and that is that you know it really was a marketplace in the sense that people came to the marketplace with their you know carefully thought through desires, right. and um, uh, the businesses tried to you know respond to those and provide uh, goods and services in response to them. Once you once industrialization happens, and once you move to a model where you have mass democracy, where the franchise is universal. Yeah. Uh, you no longer have these sorts of ruling classes where the culture is largely determined by a very small group of elites in places like Los Angeles and New York um, by huge media concerns and in which commerce and, and governance are now highly manipulative. Okay. And the manipulation uh, is very sophisticated and is grounded in, in social science. Yeah. Um, it seems to me that you have a fundamentally different – you're in a fundamentally different universe. And a lot of the older – the material that we're teaching still presumes the earlier universe. In other words, it, assumed, it presumes that we are free rational beings who engage both the polity and, and the economy right. in this sort of rationalist, enlightened, enlightened self-interested sort of way. Right. When in reality um, – we are being subject to the manufacture of both desire and consent. Correct. Uh, often, oftentimes unaware of it. Correct. Um, and so that's not a reason to have no humanities education, but it is an argument against the kind of humanities education we're, we're currently giving, which is still largely the old one. Right? Yeah. No, I, I hear you. Uh, but but I, my response would be uh, perhaps predictably, exactly the opposite. That is... That so please, go ahead. I, I think that, that precisely for because of the reasons you just pointed out, um, we need more and better uh, uh, humanistic education. Um, it, is, it is true that we live in a very different kind of society from what it was you know, a century ago or two centuries, certainly 500 years ago. Um, it's a society that's more complex where... As you were pointing out, there's lots more manipulation that's going on. There's a lot of more stuff that, that, that it's difficult to be aware of and track and so on and so forth. But it's also a kind of society where we have a lot of, I think, positive developments, such as a dramatically increased access to education, dramatically increased access to information. You know, everybody has a computer and has the Internet. Yes, I know that the most the, the, the most frequent thing that people do on the Internet is porn, but still. Hey, what's wrong with the porn? No, don't Nothing. like porn. <laughs> but, um, nonetheless, so, so you know, people, people can inform themselves. They have access to a range of, of sources of information. The, the world is really much more open in, in that from that perspective it's also a much more dangerous place and i'm not talking just about you know terrorist attacks i'm talking about government manipulation corporate manipulation which i actually think frankly are much more dangerous than than terrorist attacks uh in, in, the, in, on, in the pervasive long-term sense yes i agree long-term, yes. long-term sense of yes situation. so uh, so but because of that therefore i actually do think that pe- we need to give him better and more tools to people 
to navigate these more complex landscape. Now, but do those come from the traditional look? I mean, if you read John Locke's Second Treatise of Government, right. what it tells you is that you are a rational, self-interested individual right. who engages in the social contract by coming into a tacit agreement with your fellows. Right. And uh, this is utter nonsense. This is not. This is not anything remotely like the world we live in. And if anything, it gives you a misimpression, right? Um, but we don't, um, but we don't stop in, at Locke, right? I mean, so no, no, no. Of course not. I'm just seeing as one a very prominent sort of thing that we study, or Mills on Liberty would be another sort of thing that we might read. When really, what we need to be teaching them is propaganda analysis. Uh, right? We well, need we, we need to be teaching them how to decode. Well, that, right? again, that's that's what I am teaching actually in my critical thinking courses, propaganda analysis, right? Right. So uh, you're doing it in a non-traditional way then because typically correct. it's Venn diagrams and, and – No, that's correct. So we do need to update our tools. But still, I do think that uh, – for one thing, let's, th- let's take your example of, you know, sort of lock and mail and so on. As you know, we, we, do, we go also all the way to uh, roles and, and nods yes. and, you know, yes. sort of modern, more sophisticated, more contemporary – kind of thinkers. But I do think that there is still a value in the history of ideas. There is still a value in figuring out, well, you know, you, you're not going to understand where Rawls comes from unless you do, in fact, read, uh, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the predecessors. Uh, so there is something about the history of ideas. <coughs> Bless you. <laughs> ideas that it's, that it's important. Um, but you're right. The curriculum needs to be updated, and it is updated. It is being updated uh, to some extent. I mean, I mentioned my own example of, of you know how I teach a critical thinking class. But uh, the fact that we're bringing in, uh, even in philosophy, intra-philosophy courses, we're bringing in a much broader variety of voices, contemporary philosophers, women philosophers, minority philosophers, and so on and so forth. These, these all give a much more nuanced and much more complex landscape, intellectual landscape than, than sort of the classics yeah. as they used to be taught you know, until – a few years ago. So you're right. It does need, but again, I think the, I take your counsel to be in your analysis to point toward a uh, need to, for expansion and updating. Uh, and so maybe you can, you know, retain a certain number of classic texts. I am still actually quite a, quite a believer in the, in the importance of being aware of history, both history per se and cult, cultural history and, and history of ideas, but you can cut down on that. So select the best of the best of the best and, you know, read mail, but you, may, you might not want to read Bentham, for instance. Uh, you just might want to mention it. Uh, and, and, then, and then instead give more space to a more recent, more updated, more, more nuanced perspective on things. Yeah. But I read your analysis as pointing toward more and better. Not, yeah. not- I, th- I think this probably is where we disagree the least because I did suggest that perhaps one could reconfigure the general the, the, the general education curriculum, at least the humanities portion, um, as almost in a sort of a countercultural vein. Uh, uh, and, and it sounds to me like you agree with that and, and are trying to partially do that already yourself. I do think it would entail some substantial reconceiving of the of the canon. Yes. I think we would have a lot more of what I would call the philosophers of suspicion. Yes. The Nietzsche's, the Marx's, the the Foucault's, the 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 ones who are really seeing the the need for decoding, yeah. um, as opposed to the classical liberals, agreed, in which there's no need to decode at all because right. everything is transparent in their in their universe, right? Agreed. But but that's from what I, I understand, something like that is happening. For instance, in uh, in, in in English department and literature department. So I was. Yeah. Uh, on a search committee recently in the English department at City College because they were hiring somebody 
uh, in a position that had to do with the, the connection between literature and science. And since I, my background is in science, then they figured I might be able to provide you know, good feedback on, on that hire. And so I, I got to know colleagues in the English department and, and a little bit, you know, talking about a little bit with them. I was there for a few days at, the, at their, their major conference. And so talking about what, what they're teaching and how they're teaching and so on and so forth. And it seems to me that that is exactly what they're doing. I mean, they're reading much less in the way of class. They're not excluding them. You know, they, they still read Shakespeare. for, for Yeah, yeah. Hours. But they are, they are going to, they're, they're cutting down on, on the standard classics and they are, in fact, introducing a lot of modern literature that comes up with very different perspectives. They teach science fiction as thought experiments. Yeah. They teach, you know, colonial novels written from the point of view of the colonized people and, you know, and so on and so forth. So, so that is happening. That, that kind of appetite is happening. It may be the philosophy departments are perhaps lower because we're more i think we're more conservative in general yeah that's that's fair i think that that may be may be the case um but i think that we're going in in that direction now that said um there is one point that i think you are absolutely right um i think it's near the end of your of your essay and and it is when you suggest that uh a value you you say the actual value i would put it a value or an important value of the humanities is for their own sake, as 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 the kind of thing that one should engage and practice, uh, because that's what you want to do, because it enriches your life. Period. Yeah. Without yeah. any particular practical application, either in terms of practical virtue or in terms of technical uh, skills or anything like that. Right. I do think that's a very important thing to insist on. I do think, and and as you know, at this point. Unfortunately, that is a minority opinion, and it is a countercultural opinion. But you know, these things—I'm optimistic, perhaps—but I think that these things are these kind of pendulum swings back and forth, um, you know, over over periods of decades. Um, I think you're right there. I think that we have gone into a society again, especially a, um, the American American society, much more so than any other Western or Westernized society, uh, has gone into the point where doing things for their own sake. Or just because they're pleasurable, just because they give you a transcendental experience, or just because they make you feel like a, a human being as opposed to just an animal goes around, you know, doing what it needs to be done in order to survive and reproduce. Um, those are important. Those are crucial. And I think that people should be exposed to that. Those not only in college but before college, right? I mean, I do think that that's one reason why, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, we have a lot more majors in the arts, in the fine arts. At City College than in philosophy because people do have that need. People do yeah. want to, to to engage with poetry, with music, with literature for their own sake. Uh, if they can make yeah. a career out of it, great. But 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 they want to do it for their own sake, right? Yeah. And there is a sense in which this this some kind of a contradiction between the modern academy and the outside world because modern academy is becoming more and more in the United States, especially, it's becoming more and more sort of corporatized. It's becoming the sort of the, uh, adopting the corporate model of practical utility, bean counting, yeah. and, 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 and so on and so forth. But in fact, society at large isn't necessarily going in that direction. I mean, we've seen over the last few years, you know, people keep, keep telling us that, uh, that um, bookstores and libraries are dying, but in fact, there's more book clubs than ever. Uh, you know, books keep selling in the millions. Um, there's philosophy clubs everywhere. Uh, there is huge investments in, in, in museums, in, in uh, concert halls, and so on and so forth. People want that kind of experience. They, people want that sort of that sort of uh, additional component to their lives because that's one of the ways people get meaning out of their lives. Meaning doesn't come out of just doing your job, you yeah, know, hours a day and going back yeah. home and watching TV. 
So let me let me just be clear on this. On, on what, why are you standing on this? Because this is very interesting. So this was indeed the last part of my essay, and what I said was that you know what troubles me the most about all of this. You know, on, at one level, I understand it. We've been pushed into a defensive posture. Right. We're watching our disciplines being erased out of the university, and I have to tell you, um, much worse than philosophy, foreign language has completely collapsed at my university. I don't know how it is at CUNY. That's right. But at my university, it's completely collapsed to where I don't know what they're going to have all those professors teach. They, they may be they, they may have they may attrition them. They may, I don't know what they're going to do. Um, so we put, get put into this defensive posture, and so we start we look around. Okay, what what can how can we defend this? How can we justify this? Ah, it's necessary for basic skills because we're still in the gen ed curriculum, and we can make our stand there. And so we make our stand there, right. and that's to suggest that the value of these subjects is. Not just instrumental, but hyper-instrumental. I mean, there's nothing more instrumental than a skill, than a basic skill, right? right. Um, and what it seems to me is that the real value, and, and then here, I, here, this is where we might not disagree a little bit, the v- real value in the sense of its greatest, deepest value, and the value of its greatest exam, its greatest instances, right? So the greatest works of literature, the greatest works of philosophy, the greatest works of fine arts, that their front, their value is primarily gratuitous, right? In the sense that it's not an instrumental value. It's a value simply in that it, as you said, enriches. I like to use the word sacralize, um, um, which I know you don't like because you think it has too many religious connotations. Okay. But it does, I think meaning is a good, is a good happy medium. Right. Um, and I think that everybody feels the need for their lives to have to, to be significant in some way beyond simply achieving certain outcomes and ends. Right. Um, and so what bothers, what I almost wonder is, are we making such a heavy case for the instrumental value of these things that we're really, we're denying what's really most important and best about them. And we're not then taking on a fight that we need to be taking on, which is that our society doesn't value such things anymore. And maybe, in other words, I'm almost thinking that we're fighting the wrong fight in the wrong place on the wrong grounds. Okay, right? so let me completely agree with you on one on one aspect and then challenge you on another one. So I completely agree that the most important value of the humanities is intrinsic. It's not, it's not external. It's not instrumental, right? I don't think that... Uh, that it's a good idea in general, or it's in fact even even a reflection of reality to sort of sort of uh, therefore downplay or deny the importance of the practical value. I think the two can live next to each other. I mean, I think that something can be both transcendental and practical at the same time. You don't think that one drives out the other? You don't think no. that the obsession with instrumental values makes it harder to see intrinsic uh, values? But if you use if if you're using the word obsession, I would agree. But uh, but but obsession in sort of in, implies that there is an imbalance, right? That that there is, and you may be right that there is at the moment, for practical reasons, ironically, right, for reasons of survival within the university, there is in fact an imbalance. There is too much emphasis on the practical aspect and too little on the sort of transcendental, intrinsic aspect. But I don't think that those that those are necessarily at odds with each other. Okay, uh, yeah, go on. Functioning human being needs both. You know, you need techne and you need also the you know the basic right. stuff. Um, so but, so, but on that, I agree with you. Where I disagree is that this is a reflection of our society. I think this is a reflection of certain forces that, are, that have become dominant in our society uh, that have, as I, as I said, corporate, uh, pushed the university in a corporate <coughs> direction. But this is like saying that 
because you know half of the wealth in the United States is owned by one percent of the population, then the one percent of the population really is what it is all about. It's not. We have a very skewed perspective of things because certain forces seem to be inevitable and certain forces seem to be shaping things uh, and therefore sort of convince us that this is really what society, quote unquote, wants. As I said earlier, there's a number of, of instances, you know, a number of examples that one can bring up that, that that's not what society wants. Right. No, you, you, all the things you said is true. The book clubs, the popularity of these things, people going to Socratic cafes and all right. sorts of stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe in it. So, so, so uh, think about Michael Sandel, for instance, our colleague in, at Harvard, who has yeah. become a, a, a pop star of philosophy, right? Yeah. So the guy fills up stadiums. Uh, both in the United States, this has just happened in Boston recently, and in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, the guy sells millions and millions of copies of, of his books. I didn't know that. I didn't know he was that popular. He's that popular. So so the thing is, you know, so how do you account for that? I mean, that seems to me a, uh, an indication of a deep need for mm -hmm. transcendental experience, for deep meaning and all that sort of stuff. And so you don't think that we devalue this? I don't think so at all. Then why is it so devalued in the university? It's, I mean, I actually I had a provost ridicule philosophy. Yeah, he he's an engineer, yeah. and said something about you know, wow, well, you know, I could think about the meaning of life at home. You know, I mean, he said something. He said this at the Senate Senate meeting or something. I was appalled. Right. Why why is there such a? I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying that this is a particularly toxic feature of the contemporary university. That's right. And it's a particularly toxic feature, by the way. You pointed out this earlier in the beginning, and maybe. maybe uh, I don't want that to slip as a point. I mean, you made a distinction very, very early on between public universities and sort of elite universities, right? Mm -hmm. You don't see this kind of behavior, or certainly not as much of this kind of behavior at elite universities. You don't go, I don't think your provost would survive a minute at Harvard. No, no, of at, course. At places like that, right? So that's an interesting question. Well, why? And I think the answer is, and I'm speculating here, so bear with me for a second, but I mean, the answer is that over the last, 20 or so years, we have seen a deliberate assault on public education by certain political forces. That assault has taken the, uh, the, the, the shape of, first of all, ridiculing the humanities in particular, precisely because the humanities are dangerous, my friend. Yeah. That's the thing. Why is it that so many right-wing politicians are against the teaching of philosophy? You yeah, Mark Rubio just made it, just said that you'd be better off being a welder. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think that's by chance, my friend. Mm. Those, that's where you, you know, where is it that you're going to read Marx in philosophy courses? Where is it that you're going to be reading Nietzsche? Or where is it you're going to be reading, you know, countercultural novels or novels about colonialism or racism or feminism in humanities departments? You're not going to read them in engineer courses. Right, 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 right. So, right. so there's that. That has caused, of course, a steady that's been one of the causes, but it has resulted in a steady decrease of state funding for state universities, so much so that some universities are barely recognizable as state universities because they get less than 50% of the funding from their states, which means that the students are actually now increasingly paying almost the level of tuition. Right, so at the really good ones like Michigan now, it's practically private school tuition because probably they have a bigger endowment than a state. Right. But in my state, it's almost all. I mean, it's state and tuition. That's it. You know, we don't have an endowment of any sort of significant size. Yeah. So, but University of Virginia is the same thing. And, yeah, yeah. Even CUNY, where I am, which is still one of the most affordable uh, schools, you know, public schools in in the country. You know, our our 
uh, public funding keeps going down and down and down. And of course, how do we make it up? You know, some some of our colleges do have small endowments, but you know, mostly it's part of tuition, which means that essentially that concerted effort uh, over the last several decades has resulted in the essentially the privatization of public universities. Of the good ones, and then the ones that don't are subject, you're saying, to the pressures of the state legislators. Right who want STEM and want practice and they want, and that's where all this outcomes based assessment comes and all this sort of stuff that add to that, hmm. that we now have a corporate culture of administrators. I mean, it used to be that even upper, you know, even high level administrators were actually faculty who yeah. would serve as a Dean or as a provost, sometimes even as a president for a number of years. And then they will go back to the rank of faculty. That was an organic way of running a university because uh, of course, these were your colleagues, and they will, you know, you, you you now are for a few years making decisions about how to distribute money and resources to your colleagues. But in a few years down the road, you're going to be one of them again. So you're going to have you know, to be careful about how you do that. You are playing for the same team in some sense. But now we have a a, a cadre of of university administrators who are completely independent. Some of them don't even have a, a history as faculty. They come from the yeah, especially presidents. Our president is a former lawyer. Exactly. Yeah. They come <laughs> outside. They have a completely different mindset. They really don't care or don't know about how education works, and they make uh, decisions on a based essentially on a corporate uh, uh, model. And this is what is destroying public universities. Uh, this combination of forces of increasingly reduced funding on the one hand and sort of corporatization on the other hand, that is what we need to resist, however, I would suggest. Um, and that is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, the humanities are in so much trouble. I don't think it's a reflection of society at large. I don't think that that is society, what society wants. I think this is the result of a very concerted political effort and of a very small number of people who are very influential within the university these days who have changed the way or are changing the way in which universities work. Especially, certainly public ones. Um, and the public ones that aren't Michigan or Virginia, especially. Exactly. Um, I'll have to think about that. That's a very interesting suggestion um, because you're certainly right about there seems to be all sorts of uh, enthusiasm in the popular culture for a number of these sorts of things. I did not know that Sandel was filling stadiums. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did, I did, that's amazing. I had no, I did not know that. Um, but uh, the, the other point is well taken. I have to think about that. Uh, that's a good, uh, that's a good observation. Um, so uh, I think that we cover this pretty well. I think so. <laughs> and we got to disagree enough that people will maybe be a little more satisfied. What's usually, what's usually a chorus. Um, <laughs> and, uh, listen, you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. You too. Oh. And I hope to see you over Christmas break. I will be coming to New York. I hope we can work it out. Absolutely. Let me know. All right, Massimo, take care and uh, good grading finals. Thank you. Have a good uh, one. <laughs> all right. Signing off now.